you're listening to the Pursuit of Christ podcast, where we are passionate about developing a deeper relationship with Jesus. The Pursuit of Christ podcast is a ministry of Arise Baptist Church in Houston, Texas. If you would like to contact us or have questions about our podcast, we can be reached via email at info at arisebaptistchurch.org. Now here's James Collard with today's challenge from Scripture. Last week, we examined Esther chapter 2, and we experienced the ascension of Esther to the position of Queen of Persia. After she was placed on the throne, her position was further solidified by the foiling of an assassination plot that was intended to kill the king, Xerxes. The plot had been uncovered by Esther's cousin, Mordecai, and together they had informed the king. Because of their actions, Xerxes was spared, the conspirators were executed, and the deed was written down in the chronicles of Persian history. But in chapter 3, our story takes a hard left turn as we are introduced to a new character, Haman the Agagite. Chapter 3 and verse 1 states, After these things did King Ahasuerus promote Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, and advanced him, and set his seat above all the princes that were with him. The term Agagite means that Haman is an Amalekite, and possibly even a descendant of the Amalekite royal family. Now for us to fully understand the book of Esther, We have to take a deep dive into the underlying conflict between the nation of Israel and the Amalekites. If we don't grasp the extent of the conflict between these two nations, we will fail to fully understand the entirety of the book of Esther. So with that said, let's walk through a brief Old Testament history lesson together. We start all the way back in the book of Genesis. Now, according to Genesis chapter 36 and verse 12, the Amalekites were descendants of Amalek, the grandson of Esau. They were born out of the Esau versus Jacob conflict, and they had a culturally ingrained, deep-seated hatred for the people of God. Now, John MacArthur notes that Esau is actually one of the saddest characters in the entire canon of Scripture. Even though he had an incredible opportunity to walk in truth, he instead chose immorality and godlessness. He was a worldly and profane individual with no regard or inclination for the things of Yahweh God. When Esau realized what he had rejected in his birthright, he made a feeble attempt to retrieve it to no avail. While Esau experienced regret for his choices, he never truly repented. He was a man that wanted the blessings of God without God himself. He was fully apostatized, refusing to turn to God in faith and repentance. And this was the legacy that he passed down to his Amalekite progeny. As the Amalekites grew into a nation, they became nomadic, wandering in the Negev desert in the southern portion of the nation of Israel. They were known for the domestication of the camel and for their use of them in surprise raids on unsuspecting travelers. And the nation of Israel fit that bill upon their exodus from Egypt. And so after Israel leaves the nation of Egypt, they were moving along the outskirts of the Sinai Peninsula toward the Promised Land. And the Amalekites came and they ambushed the pilgrims and they attacked the rear guard of the caravan. They fell upon the weak and the feeble, and as Deuteronomy 25, verses 17 and 18 tells us, they feared not God. 
This was an unprovoked and a cowardly attack, a seek and destroy mission, if you will. The Israelites had not infringed on Amalekite territory and they didn't pose a threat. The Amalekites knew that Israel was far from civilization and relatively defenseless. And they thought that the time was right for Israelite extermination. Now, the day after the ambush, the Israelites engaged in pitched battle with the Amalekites at the hill of Rephadim, near the bottom tip of the Sinai Peninsula. You can read the biblical account in Exodus chapter 17, verses 9 through 13. If you're not familiar with it, I would encourage you to pause here for a minute, open your Bible and read it, and then rejoin us. Moses supported his troops, led by Joshua, by holding the staff of God over his head. The staff was representative of God's sovereignty in the consequences of the battle. We know that the Amalekites were militarily superior because whenever the staff dropped, the warriors of Israel began to lose. But with assistance from Aaron and Hur, Moses was able to hold the staff of God high throughout the day, and the Amalekites were eventually defeated. After God won the victory, he commanded that the deed of the Amalekites be written down for remembrance through future generations. The godless Amalekites were now to be counted among the Canaanites, part of a culture fit for extermination. Joshua would pass on to his successor the obligation to exterminate the Amalekites, for God had declared total, the Hebrew word here is harem, he had declared total harem warfare on the Amalekites. Now, we need to take a quick aside here and talk about harem warfare just a little bit. There are several strict rules governing harem that God put into place. First, Israel was not allowed to maintain a standing army. A potential soldier was invited, even actively encouraged, to stay home because God desired only those who wanted to be used by him. Second, soldiers were not allowed to be paid for their service. They were going to war as agents of God's judgment and not for personal gain. Thus, soldiers were not allowed to take spoils or plunder. And that's exactly why Achan was executed for stealing from the battlefield at Jericho. He took what did not belong to him. He was a member of the Israelite army that was conducting Haram, and when he stole, he was violating this command. Third, Haram warfare was only fought for the conquest or defense of the promised land. So there's a very specific time and place for this type of warfare. Finally, holy war, this Haram war, could only be launched at the command of Yahweh God and announced through a prophet of God. And that's exemplified when Samuel, the prophet, comes and announces the commencement of the Haram warfare against the Amalekites in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verses 1 through 3. Notice also that it was Yahweh God himself who did the fighting during a harem war. Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 4 states, For the Lord your God is he that goeth with you to fight for you against your enemies to save you. So God is the agent of this warfare and he is fighting for his glory. The goal of this type of warfare was the extermination of an evil culture that stood diametrically opposed to God. Once a culture had reached a certain point of wickedness, God could not demonstrate long-suffering towards it anymore and had no choice but to bring total judgment. Notice again, Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 17 and 18. It says this, But thou shalt utterly destroy them, 
So, uh, I, I'm sorry, that they, uh, but thou should utterly destroy them, that they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods. So, or because, or so to, to stay away from the fact that you should sin against the Lord your God. So God is helping to protect the nation of Israel by conducting this harem warfare against the Canaanite and the Amalekites. God wants to make sure that his glory is exalted, that his people are, are passionately pursuing obedience to God rather than walking after foreign gods and idols. So that's the command, and that's harem warfare in a nutshell. That's what it looks like, and that's the purpose. But the time of God's harem warfare against Amalek was not yet ready to be completed. At the time of Israel's entrance into the promised land, Moses commanded the people to remember the transgression committed against them. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 19, at the appointed time, the Israelites were to, and I quote, blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Why? Because of their attempt to exterminate the people of God. Now, why does God delay here? Well, the only reason that I can give you is it's strictly due to the sovereign, long-suffering, and patience of God. And, and, and by waiting, God is extending grace to the Amalekites and giving them an opportunity to repent. But instead, the Amalekites chose to spurn God's gracious patience. And instead, they tormented Israel during the day, days of the judges. In Judges chapter 3, they were part of the coalition of raiding nations that attacked Israel after the death of the judge Othniel, and they enslaved the Israelites for 18 years. The Lord eventually brought deliverance through Ehud, the left-handed judge, but soon Israel was enslaved again due to their sinfulness and idolatry. The Amalekites are also mentioned as cohorts of the Midianites, who oppressed God's people for seven years and drove them to live in caves. They had come en masse. Judges chapter 7 and verse 12 tells us that their camels were without number. And they executed a scorched earth campaign which left the Israelites completely impoverished. Finally, God chose to throw off their oppressive yoke by the hand of Gideon. So finally... During the reign of Saul, the first king of Israel, God deemed the time right for his harem warfare against the Amalekites. Their wickedness, their antagonism of Israel, and their outright rejection of God's grace had grown to the point where God could no longer allow their wickedness to continue. Saul, who was noted for his military prowess and leadership, was ideally suited for carrying out this task of divine judgment. And he amassed an army of 210,000 Israelite warriors, and he ambushed the Amalekites in the Negev Desert. The attack was incredibly successful, and yet Saul disobeyed by keeping many of the best animals alive, as well as sparing the life of Agag, the Amalekite king. This was self-serving, selective obedience, which was, in fact, disobedience. By failing to completely destroy the wickedness, Saul increased it by, according to 1 Samuel 15, 19, doing evil in the eyes of the Lord. Because of Saul's disobedience, he was removed from the kingship of Israel and was no longer allowed to act as God's hand of divine judgment. 
The Amalekites were not utterly destroyed as God had commanded, and because of Saul's sin, their wickedness was allowed to endure. David, the anointed king of Israel, picked up the mantle of warring against the Amalekites due to Saul's inability to serve as the instrument of God's judgment. So we see David raiding against the Amalekites, and he eventually met them in pitched battle in 1 Samuel 27. David attacked Amalekite raiders who had invaded portions of Israel. He attacks them with a lightning strike. And according to 1 Samuel 27, 17, he fought them from dusk until the evening of the next day. Now this attack all but wiped the Amalekite army off the face of the earth. And they are not mentioned as a military opponent of Israel until the time of King Hezekiah. And that's really where we see the final fall of Amalek as a people group. It's listed in 1 Chronicles 4, 42 and 43. It says, And some of them, even of the sons of Simeon, 500 men went to Mount Seir, and they smote the rest of the Amalekites that were escaped and dwelt there unto this day. So what's happening in this text is that the tribe of Simeon was expanding to inherit the promised land that was rightfully theirs. And they fought these Amalekites that they found that had escaped the campaigns of David and Saul. And after this brief mention, the Amalekites are no longer listed in Scripture as a people group. So this, in a nutshell, this is the historical conflict between Israel and the Amalekites. God had declared eternal harem warfare on them, but because of Saul's sin, Israel had not obeyed. The remnant in Israel to whom Esther was written would have felt an immediate sense of foreboding by the entrance of this character, Haman the Agagite. Here is a proud, bitter enemy of God who had survived and endured. Here, the generational consequences of Saul's sinful actions come full circle and threaten the very existence of God's people. Here, the enemy of God is now elevated to a position of power, second in command of the entire Persian Empire, with both the authority and the anger issues necessary to exterminate an entire nation from off the face of the earth. Every Israelite reading this story would have felt the tension, the angst, the trepidation of this character being promoted to this position. And... If you and I are going to read the book of Esther and understand it in the way that the original author intended, we need to experience this same sense of foreboding. Next week, we'll pick up our story in Esther chapter 3 and verse 2. But I want to wrap up today's episode with some thoughts concerning God's harem warfare against the Amalekites. This conflict leaves us feeling uncomfortable and in need of answers. Why did God commission this type of warfare? Now, to answer this question, I think we need to look at what this teaches us about both the human condition and about God himself. Remember that the Amalekites had rejected God's covenant and they wanted to prevent others from experiencing those covenant blessings. They violently and aggressively sought to afflict the people of God and to wipe them off the face of the earth. Because of their opposition, God declared eternal war on them. Now you bring that truth into the New Testament context, and we see that apart from Christ, you and I are the enemies of God. According to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, those in their sin are actively working as agents of the devil. 
conformed to the world system and living entirely for self-gratification. Because of this, those living apart from Christ are children of wrath, or more literally, under the wrath and condemnation of Almighty God. This is our human nature and position apart from Christ. Only through Christ can our status be changed from that of enemy to that of a son. We are also reminded that sin has disastrous, even generational consequences. Consider Esau. He spurned the covenant blessings of God. His descendants waged an unprovoked war on the people of God. And as a result, they had harem warfare executed against them by God himself, which led to their eventual annihilation as a people. Consider Saul. Saul failed to carry out the harem commands in 1 Samuel 15. As a result, his kingship was rejected by God. His selective obedience allowed the Amalekites to endure, and I know I'm jumping ahead a bit here, but it led to Haman's attempt to exterminate the Jewish people. This was an attempt to put the line through which Christ, the Savior, was to appear. This was an attempt to end that line. Humanly speaking, Saul's disobedience put the entire redemptive plan of God at risk. Those are serious consequences for Saul's sinful actions. So we need to understand the serious generational consequences that our sin brings. And I think believers today, we need to recognize the malignant and destructive nature of our sin. This is why the Apostle Paul tells us as believers to mortify or put to death our sinful fleshly lusts in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 5. Believers today need to be conducting harem warfare on wickedness. The wickedness that is found within each one of us in our own sinful lusts and pride. We need to be waging war on our sin nature, putting our own fleshly enemy to death. So that's what it teaches us about the human condition. But on the flip side, what does this whole conflict teach us about God? Let me give you several thoughts. First, God's character is consistent. Many people want to split God between the Old and the New Testaments. They say that the God in the Old Testament is vengeful and angry, while the God of the New Testament is characterized by grace and love. But this is not the case. The wrath of God is described in both the Old and the New Testaments. He's also described as long-suffering and merciful in both Testaments. God is not a dichotomous God. He is not a God that we split in half and say, well, this part of God is this way and this part of God is this way. God's character is consistent, eternal, and unchanging. Second, God's attributes are total and perfectly interwoven. We can't split God like a pie chart. His attributes are perfectly balanced and they work together in perfect harmony. His holiness is transcendent. His beauty is balanced with justice. His wrath is balanced by grace. His jealousy is enhanced by love. His anger is tempered with mercy and long-suffering. One cannot pick and choose attributes of God that they like and leave the others because God is total and in totality. We can't split God. Third, God always keeps his covenant promises. In Genesis chapter 15, 
God promised the land to Abraham. He foretold of the 400 years of slavery in Egypt because the land was not yet prepared. Verse 17 of Genesis chapter 15 states, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. So God was long suffering for centuries, allowing the wickedness of the native inhabitants to grow until God could no longer stand their wickedness. He then instituted Haram as a tool of divine judgment to execute his judgment on sin. The Amalekites were included in Haram because of their repeated, violent, unprovoked attacks against Israel. They were determined to wipe out the people of God. And because of this, the Amalekites were not just a threat to ethnic Israel, but to the salvific plan of God for all other nations. As the descendants of Esau, the Amalekites had despised the covenant of Abraham, and they were determined that no one else could add access to what they had rejected. Because of this, God brought the force of his divine wrath against them. God always keeps his covenant promises. Fourth, and finally, we must remember that God's wrath is to be feared and reverenced. God's wrath is always in proportion to human sinfulness. But we as sinners fear it, as we should, because we have fallen short of the glory of God. And as, and as apart from Christ... We are under divine condemnation. Because of God's omnipotence, His all-powerfulness, He is able to do anything that He desires, including punishing the wicked. I think that we as believers, we must remember that God's wrath is His love in action against the sinfulness of men. God is love and He does all things for His glory. He loves His glory above all. And he sovereignly rules and acts in such a way as to bring himself maximum glory. That is his sovereign right as God. Sin tarnishes the glory of God and it assaults his character. Thus, a holy and a glorious God must act justly and judge sin. Otherwise, he would not be God. God's love for his own glory motivates his wrath against sinfulness. This is a sobering reality for all and a terrifying pronouncement for those who are without Christ. Now, I, I do understand that God's wrath isn't the most enjoyable topic to discuss, but let me leave you with a final encouraging thought, and that's this. God's wrath is satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. God came into the world to save sinners because he loved us. His sacrifice on the cross took the full brunt of God's wrath and enabled Christ to bestow his perfect righteousness onto unbelieving sinners. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 is one of my favorite texts in all of scripture. It says, For God made him, Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we, unbelieving sinners, might be made the righteousness of God in him, Jesus Christ. Now, through the sacrifice, the payment of Christ, God can legally declare a sinner righteous. God did what we were unable to do and more than we could ever deserve. For those who place their faith and trust in Christ, there is no condemnation. And that, my friends, is a glorious thought. If you have never placed your faith and trust in Christ, there is nothing that would bring us more joy than to have the opportunity to help you do that today. If that's something that you would like to do, or if you simply have some questions, 
please call our staff here at Arise Baptist Church or email us at info at arisebaptistchurch.org. We would love to help you take that next spiritual step in your walk with Jesus. Well, next week we'll jump back into Esther chapter 3 and see how Haman the Agagite seeks to derail God's redemptive plan. We hope that you'll join us again then. Have a great weekend and God bless.